Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture reading today is Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thanks. Please be seated. I hope the letter of Hebrews has been refreshing to your soul as we've been studying through it. As we study, as you read it, as we listen to it, as we meditate on it. My prayer for us corporately and my prayer for you personally is that we would have ears to hear what God's communicating to us, what he's saying, how he's communicating. We've heard so many messages already in the introduction of the first three chapters of how he's communicating to us through his son, Jesus. So may we have ears to hear what God is communicating to us. My prayer is that we'd have eyes to see Jesus clearly, minds to consider Jesus confidently, and hearts that believe Jesus as our only confession. That's what we've been looking at from Hebrews, and that's my prayer for us. As we approach the text, this is what our hearts desire, I would say, should be. This is our posture. This is why we gather on a weekly basis to hear and see, not from whoever's speaking behind the pulpit, but to hear and see God from his word. And so as we continue this voyage through Hebrews, we begin to navigate more treacherous waters. The text that we're about to approach, this next section is Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13. Now this is a lengthy section. It's all one section. It's one complete thought. And it's a word of caution. It's a word of caution that is written to a persecuted people who are facing the real pressures and challenges that they struggle with. Uh, And honestly, we have a hard time. We have a really difficult time. You know, Mike was just praying for the persecuted church. We do this on a regular basis. The letter of Hebrews was written to a persecuted people, and we just have a hard time resonating with that. Typically, what we identify as persecution is really not persecution. 
and it's all not that challenging. Family struggles may be real, but it's really hard for us to wrap our mind around what the recipients were really facing at that time. And that's the historical context. And so we have to keep that in mind as we read through Hebrews. It's a people who are persecuted. Now, considering the literary context of this letter, this caution that we're facing here in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13 is bookended by our confession. And last week, Pastor Pat preached from Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, and he talked to us about Jesus being our confession. We're reminded to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the faithful son and the final word from God. Jesus is our confidence, our boast, our hope, and our confession. And following this, these next couple weeks, as we work through the warning part of it, it will be followed with another confession of Jesus as our high priest. And we're going to be invited to draw near to Jesus. So we've been encouraged to listen to Jesus from Hebrews 1, to see Jesus from Hebrews 2, to consider Jesus from Hebrews 3, and we'll be invited to draw near to Jesus in Hebrews 4. And as we draw near with confidence, we'll see that we can do so because he is a sympathetic and merciful high priest. We've already been introduced to that in chapter 2. We'll be reminded of that in chapter 4. So due to the length of this section, we're going to break it up over the next few weeks, and we're actually really not going to be diving into the Hebrew side of it this morning. We're going to take some time to consider the weight of this caution, this warning, this exhortation to, to the Hebrews and from Hebrews, but we're also going to take some time to teleport back into the Old Testament, and that's what we'll do this morning, and we're going to lay some groundwork. We're going to get our bearings. We're going to see why the author of Hebrews is pulling from some dark scenes from the Old Testament to use it to drive home his point here to his current audience. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to connect the dots and see what he's doing to reinforce this warning. So we're in Hebrews 3 right now. The author's been building a case for Jesus as God's final word to humanity. And now he gives a word of caution, a word of warning, a word of exhortation. And he does so by quoting from the Psalms. If you look at Hebrews 3, if you're there right now and you see verses 7 through 11, they're taken directly from Psalm 95. So I'm wondering how familiar are we with Psalm 95? Do we remember that it was the call to worship read this morning? Okay, we got our bearings. We're pretty good so far. I don't anticipate that you were humming that as you woke up this morning. You know, Psalm 95 is on your playlist or that you were singing it throughout the week. Psalm 23, I'm sure you're familiar with, but Psalm 95, how familiar are we with Psalm 95? Well, for the original audience, for the author of Hebrews to quote the back half of Psalm 95 would have instantly triggered for them the entire psalm. It doesn't always do that for us because we've not grown up typically with going and hearing the psalms week in and week out or maybe reading through them and being very familiar with them, but they were. So what we're going to do this morning is take some time to consider Psalm 95 so that we can better grasp what the author of Hebrews is doing when he uses Psalm 95. So he's intentional. 
The author of Hebrews is intentional in why he chose this psalm to illustrate his point. So if you're not there, you can turn to Psalm 95. You don't even have to keep a finger in Hebrews. We're going to spend some time in Psalm 95 here this morning. But I want to remind us, as we consider this psalm or any of the psalms, it's important to be reminded that the book of Psalms is consisting of 150 songs or poems composed by several different authors or artists or poets. And it's really a literary wonderland that's meant to captivate us with its beauty and its imagery, this poetry that is on paper for us. We don't have the music playing that goes along with it, but we are very familiar with music. We love music as a people. It does something for us. It stirs our emotions. Um, the, the lyrics put to the music just sticks in our head. And whether you're humming or singing Psalm 95 or not, I, I don't know, but you are probably humming or singing music that you hear throughout the week, whether it's stuff we sing on Sunday morning or it's on your playlist and what you're doing. But songs resonate with us. Music resonates with us. And the imagery that is on display in the Psalms is meant to stir us to respond to God. And so this book of Psalms is billed as the Hebrew hymnal. These 150 songs have been organized into five different volumes, and they've been numbered for our ease of listening. So this morning, today, we're going to hit play on volume four, track 95. So if you're not at Psalm 95 right now, you can turn there. And what I want us to do is try to put this song on repeat. Try to allow the lyrics to sink into not just our head, but our hearts to captivate our attention. I want us to think about what is this song doing? What's it calling us to? Can we hear it? We don't slow down enough. We have to learn how to do that in our culture and society is just slow down and listen. Slow down and take it in. And this is something that we are hopefully learning to do on a weekly basis as we gather. We slow down, we sing, we fellowship, we respond to God in worship, we hear from His Word. And so right now we're slowing down to hear this song. The psalm is going to call us to worship the one true God, Yahweh. So imagine this being sung in synagogue on Sabbath. Psalm 95. Let's be reminded. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The seas is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand. The psalm is a corporate invitation to join together in joyous melody. 
It's inviting us to come and sing together in unity, in harmony, celebrating God. Let's come and sing in His presence. Let's participate in just a little glimpse of what heaven might be, what eternity might look like. Let us sing praises to God for who He is. And as we sing, let us be reminded of our relationship to Him. That's what's going on in this first part of the psalm. It's a call to worship. So focusing on who God is, just hitting the highlight reel in the first seven verses of this psalm, God is described as Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, the covenant God of Israel. You've got to remember who the original audience was. Okay, It's not us. We're a secondary audience. The original audience was the Jewish nation. And they're singing about who this God is, the rock of our salvation, verse 1. He is a great God, a great king above all gods, verse 3. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he's described as creator and sustainer. This is who they're singing to. This is who they're singing about. He's our maker and our shepherd. Well, all of this singing and reminding us of who God is and the focus on Him, we should also be considering who we are in relationship to Him. Because of who He is, we are gathering in His presence as His people. We don't take that lightly, nor should we. But it may be easy for us to forget that in the weekly grind, week after week, year after year, month after month, that kind of thing. But we're gathering in His presence as His people, as a a joyful, thankful people. That's what verses 1 and 2 describe. As a rescued people. And for Israel, they were a sovereign nation under their God and King. And as the people who've been rescued by King Jesus, we're part of another kingdom. And we gather on a weekly basis. And we have a a sovereign God and King who we declare allegiance to. It's so easy for us to take this psalm and make it our own. But in relationship to God, because of who He is, who we are, we are a secure people. Verses 1, 4, and 5. We're a grateful, humble people. Verse 6. And in verse 7, we're the sheep of the Good Shepherd. That's what's going on in the psalm. It's a call to worship. It's a song of praise to this God. And this song of praise ushers this assembly to the precipice of worship to consider the grandeur of the panoramic before them. So it's like you're on the edge of this mountain vista trying to take it in, seeing the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of our God, drinking deeply from that coming into His presence, secure, cared for, loved, praising Him, responding in worship. Take in that view. Drink deeply from the beauty. Stand in awe of this covenant, Creator, King, and God. And as we take time to meditate on these first seven verses and let that sink in, and as we stand captivated by what we behold, 
we must be careful regarding our response. How will we respond? The psalmist pivots this call to worship as a sobering warning to rightly respond to God. Right in the middle of verse 7, we see this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this psalm is a call to worship, and then he pivots right in the middle of it and gives this stern warning, this exhortation to respond better. It's almost like you can, if you're listening, you can hear the key change. And so this exhortation to listen and believe this God whom you're worshiping is illustrated by this graphic visual from the audience's history. And that's what we're going to take some time to explore this morning. But history is an interesting teacher, and it really depends on how you want to use it. History is usually written by the victor, and so there's a particular vantage point that history is written from. Our humanity often creates a revisionist history, and so we generate some kind of version that resembles somewhat truth. But when God writes the story, we can be assured of the accuracy of the account, and we can learn from what is taking place. We can learn from the past. I'm sure you can resonate with this. Um, Some things that we learn through life is that life lessons are often more impactful when we learn from or through losing, failure, weakness. Now, none of us want to sign up for that. We'd all rather learn through winning. We'd rather learn through our successes, but we don't often do that. The human narrative is often one where we learn and that lesson sticks or it's more graphically implanted when we learn through failure, when we have to struggle through something. And so that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's pulling this dark scene from Israel's past and he's putting it before them. He's, he's showcasing this catastrophe, this failure, and he's doing it to encourage a better response to God. And so rather than repeat history by responding poorly, let's respond to God in a true heart of faith. As we journey through Hebrews, we're going to be continually reminded, and the author of Hebrews is going to pull from this and keep putting this idea of responding to God in belief, in faith before us. It's something that we talk about. It's something that we sing about. It's something that pragmatically we don't like as humans. Why? Because faith is ethereal. Faith is something that's out there. It's not something that I can wrap my hands around. Faith isn't tangible for us. So we'll talk about faith, but that's not how we often choose to live by faith. We joke about driving by faith, you know, and that's just a joke, but the rest of our life is really that where we don't, we want 
a God we can see, a God we can touch, a God, like, we want real things to happen in time and space. We want direct and immediate answers to our prayer. And so this whole concept of living by faith, it's not that it's foreign to us. We just don't like it. It's not safe. It's not predictable. But then when has God promised to be predictable to us or be a God that, of our own making that we want? And so the author of Hebrews is going to be pulling from this, and he's compiling his argument, and he's building momentum here. And as much as we would like to, I mean, personally, erase our past or revise our past or ignore it altogether, the psalmist, what he's going to do is hold this dark image of failure before the congregation to show them there's a better way. There's a better way to respond to God. I think it's rather sobering to think that we could enter such a worship service as what's taking place in Psalm 95 and still respond in rebellion to the one whom we're worshiping. It's a call to worship and then this turning and warning to not reject this God, to not rebel against Him. Crazy. We pull up on a Sunday morning and we, we sing and we fellowship and we pray and we, we sit under the teaching of God's Word and we can come and respond to worship and something could happen midstream where we end up rejecting the very God that we come to worship. And that's what has taken place all throughout Israel's history. But if we're honest, we're not much different than them. I think it's crazy to imagine how quickly a posture can change from adoration to rejection. How does a nation go in this psalm from being the people of his pasture, verse 7, to a people who go astray in their hearts, verse 10? How does that happen? That's a shift, isn't it? Well, it happens because of unbelief. The case that we're going to be making over the next couple weeks is the same case that the author of Hebrews is making, and it's a, a case that rally people away from unbelief toward belief. Don't reject this God. The way that God is speaking to you through His Son, don't reject it. Respond in faith. That's the message that you're going to be hearing. And what's the, what the author of Hebrews is doing right now is he's building his case with his audience because he knows them. What dark scene in Israel's past is the author of Hebrews trying to draw out? What's he pointing to? I think it's really interesting because the author of Hebrews knows his audience, Right? And he knows exactly what he's doing. You see, he could have quoted directly from Exodus, or as we'll see in the next couple weeks, from Numbers, but he doesn't do that. He's very strategic in what he does, and he takes us deeper into the rabbit hole, and instead of quoting from those other passages directly, he quotes from Psalm 95, which triggers the whole psalm for them. And then this psalm is referencing something else, that causes us to hyperlink all the way back to Exodus 17. So Psalm 95 compels us 
to go take a look at Exodus 17. Why Exodus 17? Well, you can turn there because we're going to spend some time there this morning. That's why you're like, why was Exodus 17 read for our Scripture today when I know we're in Hebrews? I don't fall asleep every week, and I, I certainly wouldn't have missed that. But why Exodus 17? Well, this is why. is because the author of Hebrews is selecting these passages to build his case, to build his argument. As you're turning to Exodus 17, I'm going to remind you of the historical highlight reel. I know you're familiar with Exodus. We have preached through it in the last couple of years. But chapters 1 through 13, we have the actual Exodus. And so the nation of Israel is leaving Egypt. That's what's happening in the first 13 chapters. There's some amazing truths about God revealing Himself to Moses. This is who I am in chapters 2 and 3. And you have Moses being called into this thing. And then the whole scene where all these plagues and these miracles and these signs and wonders take place. And this whole nation is now leaving Egypt. That's the first 13 chapters. Chapters 14 and 15, we have the Red Sea crossing. That's pretty traumatic in its own right. Then, at the end of chapter 15, we have Mara. We'll explain that just a little bit more, but the bitter waters made sweet. In Exodus 16, we have the manna. God provides bread from heaven. And then in Exodus 17, we have Meribah and Massah. Again, we're dealing with a water issue. So, that has got you up to speed with where we're at in Exodus. But personally, I really can't imagine leading a nation on an extending camping trip. Family camp's one thing that we do over the course of a weekend with this size of a group. And it's not even the full congregation that shows up to this thing, right? But can you imagine leading an entire nation on this epic camping trip into the wilderness? That's a hard thing for me to process. We can read the Scripture so sterile. We have to try to put ourselves as much as we can into the context of what's going on, what's taking place. So we're going to take some time to consider just a few of the challenges and pressures that this whole nation faced. Imagine being part of that nation. Imagine being part of the leadership. So we're going to first zoom in on the campsite at Mara in Exodus 15. This will help us set the stage for what we're going to see in Exodus 17. So in Exodus 15, verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Mark that, that's a big deal. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Mara means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, I am Yahweh, your healer. 
Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, what's going on here? Why are we visiting this? I want to establish this idea of pattern. Three days hiking into the wilderness, think about it, an entire nation traveling into the wilderness, three days, their canteens are running dry, they have no water, and finally when they stumble upon water, the water's undrinkable, it's polluted, it's bitter. That's a problem. I don't know if you know that's a big deal or not. If you um, have done any kind of hiking at all, the canteen grows dry rather quickly. I want us to pause for a moment, and I want us to, to think about this. What causes you to be irritated, frustrated, complaining, launching into attack mode? If we're honest, it's not because we go to our faucet and there's no drinkable water. That's typically not the case, right? If we're honest, it's all those idiots on the road that don't know how to drive. They're texting and driving. I mean, you've heard enough of my illustrations that most of my frustration, irritation, and inconvenience comes from driving. I'm like this close to road rage kind of an idea, right, all the time. You know, my son mocks me every time we come to a red light. He's like, that's your favorite. Or, you know... Dad, you love when the train comes, right? You know, so that kind of stuff. I just get frosted. But if we're honest, I mean, we could all come up here and testify. If we're honest, what causes us to be irritated, annoyed, frustrated, and go into attack mode is usually just because we're inconvenienced. I mean, I'm being candid here with you. I think you can resonate with it. It's not typically because our family's survival hangs in the balance. That's what's going on in this text. Life was at stake. This little bit of a pause gives us perspective as we read through this text. So verse 24, how did the people respond to having no water? Well, naturally they grumbled, right? The logical question would be, what are we going to drink? That's a great question. That's the right question. It's not a bad question. It's not the wrong question. What's the error in this? It's their posture. It's how they ask the question, how they position themselves against the leadership in asking it. The problem was in how they brought this to Moses. Think about it. They had just experienced the miraculous in leaving Egypt, right? We only just did a little um, survey of the highlight reel. But if we're reading all of Exodus, we are just in awe. We want God, we, we spiritualize the text, and we want God to do the miraculous in our life like he did in Egypt. And we want him to part the Red Sea for us and whatever we think that looks like and means. And so we use all these analogies, and we're like, man, why doesn't God show up in my life like this? Well, guess what? He did show up in their life like this, and they had eyes on it. They saw His miraculous works. They saw God do some amazing things. Apart from all the plagues that happened in, in the Exodus thing, and they saw the Egyptians just annihilated, they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. That's pretty impressive. And then, 
They didn't have to lift a finger when they saw the, the opposing army bearing down on them and they saw that army annihilated. And all they had to do, and Pastor Pat referenced this last week, is be silent. They didn't have to raise a sword. They didn't have to go to war. They saw God just obliterate an entire army in front of their very eyes. And now they're moving out a couple days and they come without water. One might consider that perhaps God could come up with a solution for this problem, right? You would think, after everything that they witnessed, they had a front row seat to this. We read about it. We get excited. We believe this stuff, but they saw it. They lived it. They experienced God doing the miraculous. And what's their response? Hey, let's, let's talk to God about this thing. Moses, can you intercede? For... No, no, no. It's, where's the water? Come on, Moses. Get your act together. What's going on here? Like, the, the, the posture's crazy, Instead of going to God and, and trusting and believing, like, hey, you could probably do something about this. We've just seen you do some pretty cool things over here. Instead, they launch into attack mode against the leader that they could physically see. God does provide the solution, but he also uses it as a teachable moment. And he wants to establish precedence with this nation for them to learn to listen and obey for them to learn to listen and believe. This is a theme that you're going to be hearing over the next couple weeks. Listen and believe. God wants this nation to know and believe that He is Yahweh. And verse 26 says that I am Yahweh, your healer. God wants them to trust Him alone to be everything for this nation. And so they get a reprieve in verse 27, and then the nation moves on to their next recorded failure to trust God in chapter 16. So following the manna incident of chapter 16, the nation's then on the move again. And we pick up camp, they, they leave the wilderness of sin or seen, however you want to pronounce that, and they move on to camp at Rephidim, and that's where we find ourselves in Exodus 17. And the problem at Exodus 17 is a water issue. There's no water. Let's be reminded of verses 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin or sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore... The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Yikes. This is a big deal. Once again, their first response is to complain, to grumble, to attack the leader that they can see. And I have to hit pause here because it's really easy for us to read about the nation of Israel and to pile on, right? We're like, oh, boo. You know, we read this stuff. And this is a dark scene. This, I mean, they give us tons of stuff 
you know, to cherry pick, right? And as we work through their, their scenario, they do appear to be rather slow learners, if at all, right? But, you know, unfortunately for them, we get a front row seat to all their failures. I can resonate with these guys. I'm just thankful that all of my failures and struggles and, you know, ways that I don't trust God are not written in some appendix that we have in our scripture that we can turn to the the book of, you know, moron or whatever you want to call it. You know, we have these different appendixes and we can find all the ways in my life and we start dissecting them on the Sunday morning. I'm thankful that we're not doing that. And I'm sure you're thankful that we're not doing that in your life as well. But we get the opportunity to do this throughout the storyline here and we get to look at Israel. But before we, we pile on, you know, just let's take it on a step back and go, you know what, we're often like that more than we care to admit. So as we pick up this scene, though, I mean, the verbal jujitsu that Moses encountered, I mean, this guy had to have thick skin. I don't have as thick a skin as Moses. I mean, it's, it's bad enough to have to deal with one or two complaints or negatives because we know that, you know, you could get a hundred positives and one or two negatives and what's overriding your thinking, what's keeping you up at night. You know, it's always the, the negative, right? And so Moses has to navigate a nation at verbal war with him. Not for me. I want none of that. And fortunately, though, for Moses, he has a black belt in the verbal martial arts. What he does is he quickly deflects, and he uses the momentum of the nation against them, and he asks them two questions that should cut to the heart. And we see that in verse 2. The first one is, why are you quarreling with me? The second one is, why are you testing the Lord? The reality is the pressures of the immediate drowned out having any reasonable conversation. Think about it. When life circumstances are acute, it's very difficult to listen to God and others. When life circumstances are acute, it's not only difficult to listen to God, it's difficult to see what God may be doing. It's difficult to consider who He is and how consistent He's been. We read all this stuff through Scripture, but when our circumstances are very trying and challenging and the pressure's on, it's difficult for us to hear God, see God, consider God, and then draw near to God in faith, believing that no matter what I see, no matter how I feel, no matter what's taking place, God is, and He's never going to change. This is who He is, and He can come through. The problem is, is that He's not coming through on my timetable in the way that I want, and so we lose it. Well, what's the charge that's brought against Moses in Exodus 17.3? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Hmm. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Like, my goodness. You know, you can almost imagine Moses going, well, you got me. You know, <laughs> That's my, that was my plan. You know, I'll go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and then go up against the known global power right now and use signs and wonders and rescue you out of slavery 
and bring you on this epic camping adventure out into the wilderness only to listen to you complain and watch you die of thirst. All right, back to the drawing board, right? That's what's going on? No way. Moses didn't even want to be the leader. He didn't even want to go and rescue this people that he identified with. He says, God, choose someone else. This is too much. And now Moses continues to be the target for this entire nation as they're, they're going through this developing and trying to figure out what it is to be a nation. They're on the very front end of this thing. So listen now, Moses' response. Go to chapter 17, verse 4. Then Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before this people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the allegations against Moses were, Why did you bring us out here to watch us die of thirst? I'm sure just about every pastor or ministry leader can resonate with, with some of this at some point or at least appreciate the scene. But amidst the very real threat of assassination, God comes through in a very specific way for Moses. And we have to be careful now that as we read the text and as we think about this, it's easy for us to focus on the tangible, the things that we can see. Moses, grab the staff. Moses, get the elders. Moses, follow these instructions and the people will drink. And all of that is important because we're going to see, well, we probably won't take the time to do it, but you know that this is the first of two scenarios where Moses has this incident with the rock, right? This one, he's told to strike it, and the next one, he's told to speak to it, all right? And Moses gets this pattern this idea in his mind that, hey, this worked last time, and he's frustrated beyond belief this time, and he doesn't follow through with the instructions that God gives them, and he ends up forfeiting going into the promised land and leading his people. But amidst all the tangible things that we can see, let's not miss the very thing, the very idea, the focus of this text is what we can't see. Listen to this. The focus wasn't on the tangible, physical, take the staff, take the elder, strike the rock, people will drink. The focus was on the invisible presence of God in their midst. He did come through in a very real and tangible way, but if we miss what we see in verses 5 and 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. If we miss that, if we miss the presence of God, we're in danger of responding in the same way that Israel responded continually, unbelief. Again, we struggle to live by faith. We're going to be challenged with that all throughout Hebrews because we want the tangible. 
and amidst the tangible, the things that we can see, is the very real presence of the God we can't see. We have shown up today to worship this God who we can't see with our eyes, but we believe with our heart and we confess with our mouth, Romans 10 tells us. In every conversation we have, no matter where we go, we read of the psalmist in in Psalm 139, where can I go to escape your presence? I can't. And yet it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to not be aware of. Even when we gather as his people in this place to worship him, we can forget the very real presence of God on display. Because we want action steps. We want formulas and equations. We want smart goals. We want a matrix. We want all these things in place so that we can see the tangible results. And we don't want to hear believe the gospel. We don't want to hear grace. We don't want to hear live by faith. Why? Because those other things appear more tangible. These other things don't seem to get the results that we want or feel. So the name given to this place is a description of actually what took place. And it's used as a continual reminder throughout the nation's history for this people to respond better to God. Respond to God believing. Respond to God in faith. Respond trusting Him. Massah means testing. They put God to the test rather than trusting Him. And Meribah means quarreling. They quarreled with the leader that they could see because they refused to trust the leader that they couldn't see. That's what's taking place. I think we can resonate with this. The people quarreled with the leader that they could see, Moses, because they refused or were unwilling to trust the leader that they couldn't see, God, their healer. And what's their response? Is Yahweh among us or not? That was the real charge. That's how this section ends. And if we're honest, this is where we live. This is what we wrestle with. This is who our anger, our fear, our anxiety, our frustration, our concerns is all leveled against. Oh, we may take it out on our spouse or our kids or our coworkers, but it's really against God because God can do something about it. We know enough about God that all he has to do is speak the word and things happen. And I've been praying for years and nothing's changed. Is God among us or not? Is God for us or not? So this is where we'll wrap up our study this morning. We're wrestling with the very real question regarding whether or not we'll believe God. This is the case that the author of Hebrews is beginning to build and set before us. Listen to Jesus. See Jesus. Consider Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. In faith, will we believe him or will we reject him? What we're going to see over the next two weeks, we're actually going to dive into Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 4, 13. And we're going to take two weeks to explore how this groundwork that's been laid actually plays out with his current audience who's facing persecution 
who's facing frustration, who's facing real pressures within the believing community. And within the believing community, there's always believers and there's unbelievers. And this warning, this challenge is going to be to the unbelieving within the community to respond in faith, to believe and enter the rest of God. And it's going to be a challenge and an exhortation and an encouragement to the believing community to keep believing. You've not believed in vain. So amidst our circumstances, our pressures of life, the trials that persist, or maybe the persecution we're enduring, the question that lies at the heart of our wrestling is, is God among us or not? Is God for us or not? How we respond to this corporately matters. How you respond personally matters. So the author of Hebrews intentionally leverages these dark moments in Israel's past to exhort his audience to respond better, to believe God. And so as we consider our own lives personally, what are we facing corporately that drowns out the voice of God, that makes it difficult for us to listen to Him, to see what He may be doing, to consider Him, or to draw near to Him in faith? It's really challenging sometimes for us to make corporate application because we don't think that way. We only think right here. So what is it for us corporately? And then what is it for us personally? What's keeping us from hearing God? What's distracting us from hearing Him and listening to Him? Or seeing what He may be doing in our life, considering Him and drawing near to Him. The audience of Hebrews was facing very real persecution. It's a very real persecution that we read about and pray about on a weekly basis for our brothers and sisters, like in Turkey. That's why we do this. Someday we may be facing similar pressures. But we're not facing that kind of persecution. Even so, what causes us to pivot from worshiping God as the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand, to being a people who go astray in their heart? What causes that shift from adoration to rejection? Will we take God at His word regardless of our circumstances or how we feel? As you go throughout this week, I want to leave you with one encouragement to be able to prepare for next week or for the next two weeks is take some time and read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 5, verse 10. Try to take some time to read that in one sitting and be reminded of what we discussed this morning and be prepared for what we're going to be tackling over the next two weeks and considering what God may be doing in our midst. Let's pray. Father, as we gather as your people in this place, it's really easy for us to not be aware of your presence. And in one sense, that should be astounding to us, and in another very real sense, we're distracted by a million other things. And yet, 
We come to this gathering week in and week out to be refreshed by the fellowship, by your word, by the songs that we sing, as we pray together corporately, as we lean on each other, as we enjoy this sweet fellowship and communion one with another. May we never lose sight of you. May we be encouraged and refreshed and exhort one another, as long as it's called today, to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, open our ears to hear, to listen to you, our eyes to see you, our minds to consider you, and our hearts to draw near to you in faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take your word and do the sure work in us, a work that I cannot produce even in my own heart and mind, that you would cause us to hear a better message than even what we've heard this morning. May we see and savor Jesus above all else. And in Christ's name, amen.